Hey everyone, Hussein Hadri here. Welcome back to the table. It's just me today. In case you missed our announcement last month, Gabby was offered and has accepted a position at the ACLU of Michigan. She's going to continue policy advocacy in a much broader context, and the team at MCYJ could not be more proud of her, and this podcast in particular is definitely going to miss her. But this month, we are excited to bring you the final episode of this season of The Table. Uh, In the past, we've discussed Governor Gretchen Whitmer's Juvenile Justice Task Force. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about that today. Here's what we told you about that back in January. The task force is chaired by Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist and will focus on analyzing the Michigan youth justice system. The goal of the task force is to provide evidence-based recommendations on how to improve outcomes for justice-involved youth. On convening the group, Governor Whitmer was quoted as saying, we need to start focusing on uplifting our young Michiganders and treat them with dignity and respect, and first and foremost, recognize that they are children. We cannot allow an early mistake to define the rest of a child's life. We couldn't agree more. The task force brought together almost two dozen stakeholders and professionals with a variety of experiences and perspectives. This included members of all three branches of government, justice impacted individuals, local juvenile court administrators, judges, county commissioners, and of course, our executive director, Jason Smith. Meetings started last September and culminated in a final session on the 18th of July, where they finalized their recommendations and presented them at a press conference at the end of the day. All of the meetings are available on the Michigan Supreme Court's YouTube channel, which we'll link in the show notes, and you can see all of the fact-finding and discussions that led to these recommendations. We have a packed show for y'all today, so buckle in. We're going to start by talking about the task force's recommendations, what implementation will look like, and how you can take action to support that. We'll also hear from Jason Smith, our executive director, and we'll have Elizabeth Clement, an associate justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, on the podcast to discuss her role on the task force, and some of her hopes for implementation. I will say we're only going to discuss a handful of the 32 recommendations of the task force today, so I encourage you to find the full report in our show notes and read them for yourself. That will give you everything the task force considered in this process, a full list of the members, the data they considered, their key findings, their approach, and so much more. And with that, let's jump into the recommendations. So number one, the task force recommends keeping youth under 13 years of age out of juvenile court. There's consensus actually on the task force for raising the floor to 13 years old. And one of the big concerns that folks had is what happens to kids that are 12 years old that still would benefit from access to the services that they would get through the juvenile court. And the recommendations actually are clear about this. Paraphrasing from the report, youth under 13 could still be referred to probation through an alternative referral process, and that would allow them to still access the services for themselves and their families, so they wouldn't be in the jurisdiction of the juvenile court, but they could still have access to the diversion resources that they might otherwise have been directed to. And I just want to say here, this is really, really important. We talked about all the great arguments for raising the floor in episode 7. I just want to highlight here, allowing the court to continue to have jurisdiction over kids that young is not only out of step with the rest of the world, it's out of step with our own values. Hundreds of kids as young as 10 and 12 are arrested and detained in Michigan every year. No reasonable person would think that someone that young has the competency to stand trial. And you'll also recall from our last episode, setting 13 as the age of jurisdiction will not only bring us into step with other states, we'll be joining the international community and doing what the research has shown is the best practice. And that brings us to number two. The task force recommended creating a statewide public defense system. 
Now, Michigan's juvenile public defense system is practically non-existent, and to the extent that it does exist, it's dysfunctional. According to a report issued by the National Juvenile Defender Center, Michigan ranked 44th out of the 50 states in indigent juvenile defense spending. The task force's final report says, quote, there is no statewide system, nor are there standards or monitoring processes in place to ensure that youth in the juvenile justice system receive adequate defense services. They go on to say that, quote, this has resulted in significant variation in local systems in terms of accessibility to trained, qualified defenders, the types of services that are available, and when in the court process counsel is appointed. The big problem here is the fact that minorities and poor people are more likely to lack adequate representation. What we're talking about here is when the judge doesn't get the full picture. In order for judges to make the right decision in the full interest of the youth, they have to know everything about the case. They need to know about the circumstances of the offense, information about the kid's community, uh, their mental health, their economic situation, and all the other factors involved. Without that information, a judge's decision will be incomplete. What the task force is recommending here will help solve that problem because the right representation will ensure that the right information reaches the judge during the case. The task force made specific recommendations to expand the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission to help solve some of these problems. These included updating the scope and standards for representation so more folks would be able to get access to representation, introducing restrictions on waivers of counsel in delinquency cases, adding appellate services for juveniles, and juvenile justice training for prosecutors. At every step of the way, they're taking steps to make public defense available to the kids that need it. Number three, the task force recommended expanding diversion opportunities for youth. Now, the current practices of diversion in the state of Michigan are governed by two sets of rules. We've talked about this before on the podcast. There's the statewide requirements and regulations, and then each of the 57 local juvenile courts has its own policies and practices on top of that. As far as diversionary practices, like all other aspects of the juvenile justice system, some counties have great systems and others don't. The way it's written, the Juvenile Diversion Act of 1988 doesn't have any specific requirements or screenings for considering diversion for youth. The task force recommends that the state require the use of what they call a, quote, validated risk screening tool and a validated mental health screening tool. The task force goes on to add that these tools would, quote, inform, not replace professional discretion, end quote. Counties can continue to make the decisions that they believe are in the best interest of their community, but they shouldn't be able to do so without considering the additional information that these assessments might provide. And I think all of us would agree that assessing the mental health and the risk that this child would pose to the community, those are critical factors to consider. Number four, the task force recommends increasing the reimbursement rate for community-based services in order to incentivize them over residential services. Now, specifically, this is related to the Michigan Child Care Fund. Here's a refresher on that. Gabby talked about this in episode one. While each court is operated locally, they are all primarily funded by the same sources. The individual counties allocate money to their juvenile courts, with most of the remaining budget being supplemented by the Child Care Fund. The Child Care Fund operates as a reimbursement for counties, covering 50% of eligible costs. Courts will spend the money to cover costs and submit for reimbursement from the state. Community-based programs, foster care, and out-of-home placement costs are typically eligible for reimbursement. In 2019, Michigan spent approximately $400 million from the Child Care Fund. So the task force is recommending enhancing the Child Care Fund to bring about what they call a, quote, minimum framework for juvenile justice best practices statewide, end quote. Right now, community-based services are reimbursed by the state at the same rate as residential services, like placing a kid in a detention facility. What the task force is recommending here is raising the rate of state reimbursement for community-based services from 50 to 75 percent while keeping the reimbursement rate the same 
for detention services. And so this incentive structure is meant to decrease the number of kids that head to incarceration and detention, and it actually incentivizes local communities, local courts, to send their kids to community-based services. And there are some communities that are already taking steps to do this, but they don't have the resources to actually steer all of their youth toward community-based resources. This provides them all the resources they need to be able to do that, and it also rewards the communities that have taken this step. And that brings us to number five. The task force recommended the elimination of most non-restitution fees and costs associated with juvenile justice involvement. And this would bar juvenile courts from assessing any fines or fees, except restitution or anything related to the Crime Victims Fund. And if this sounds familiar, it's because we covered it in episode two. Here's what we said. We were also able to interview 21 families, and they averaged over $87,000 in debt per family. There was a study done um, that I will link in the show notes that found between 5 and 40% was being collected across the state. So it's pretty inconsistent. And for those courts that were collecting, it is pretty negligible what they're collecting. Um, most justice-involved families fall at or below the poverty line. So collecting money from those families is going to be difficult because, like we mentioned earlier, they don't have the money to collect. 5 to 40% of collections across the state, depending on which court you're looking at. The lower the courts assessed, so the least amount of assessments, the higher their collections rates were. Yeah. The consequences are pretty, they can range from minimal to pretty severe. So on the kids' side, they can be involved in the court system longer. You know, the court can hold them in under their jurisdiction for a longer period of time until they pay those, those fines and fees. It also increases the youth's risk of recidivism just by the nature of being more court involved and having that stress. A recent Federal Reserve study found that 40% of Americans could not afford an unexpected cost of $400. So if the youth is unable to pay, it falls on the parent. If the parent is unable to pay, then their wages, their taxes, or their social security can be garnished for those payments. I mean, it also has an impact on credit score, which we know dictates you know, whether or not you can get housing and all sorts of things in your adult life. Statewide, we have been advocating for the passage of a couple of bills, and that would be um, House Bill 4987 through House Bill 4991. And those bills would statewide end the assessment and collection of juvenile court fines and fees, um, with the exception of the crime victims' rights assessment and restitution. The members of the task force unanimously agreed to most of the recommendations I've mentioned here today, and that's really important. Time and time again on this podcast, we've talked about how juvenile justice is an issue where all sides can come together. This issue brings people together from all sides of the political spectrum, every level of the economy, and any cultural or religious background. We all agree on the core goals that the juvenile justice system exists not to punish kids, but to help reform kids. And to the extent possible, we should seek to keep them at home. If they have to be involved with the courts, that involvement should be limited, quick, and dialed in to their rehabilitation. Look, these recommendations aren't perfect or complete, and I think most of the members of the task force would agree, but they're a great place to start. Here's what our executive director, Jason Smith, told the Public News Service. We are extremely happy that the recommendation to eliminate fines and fees, juvenile court fees that impose huge, immense burdens on young people and families, that that was included in the recommendations and voted on unanimously, including by judges and prosecutors. 
And State Senator Sylvia Santana had similar thoughts. I think whatever we can do as a legislative body to make sure that we are putting in the necessary tools and supports to redirect that behavior, but also redirect them towards a path forward versus a proverbial cycle of being a part of the criminal justice system. Next up, the legislature has to take these on and make them a reality. Some juvenile courts have already started thinking about how they can address some of these recommendations at the local level. As an interested advocate, you can reach out to your representatives and local juvenile court administrators to encourage them to implement some of these recommendations themselves. This feels like a good time for a break. Stick around for our interview with Justice Elizabeth Clement of the Michigan Supreme Court. The Michigan Center for Youth Justice is supported by grants and donations from supporters like you. Your generous contributions make projects like this podcast possible. From the team at MCYJ, thank you. Justice Elizabeth Clement joined the Michigan Supreme Court in 2017 as the 11th woman and 113th justice in the state's history. She has since been reelected in 2018. Prior to serving as a justice, she was chief legal counsel to Governor Rick Snyder after serving as legal counsel in the Michigan State Senate. Justice Clement's career actually started in the Michigan State Senate, where she served as a legislative aide to the majority leader before going to law school. After she graduated from the Michigan State College of Law in 2002, she started a firm specializing in family law, adoption, estate planning, and criminal law. As you'll hear in the interview, her interest in some of these issues has carried over to her work on the court. Justice Clement, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Table, Conversations on Youth Justice. Can you tell us why is youth justice of particular interest to you? Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, I've been interested in, in youth justice since I was in private practice um, long ago um, and then um, continued that passion um, into um, uh, government uh, work when I went to work in the legislature and then when I was working for, for the governor as well. Um, so it was an, an absolutely natural fit when I was appointed to the court and then and became a member of the court to continue um, with, with my passion for helping youth and families um, in, in, in the state. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I'm sure your experience has been really helpful to you on the court. Talk to me about the task force. In particular, what did you advocate for the most? And which of the recommendations do you think is going to be the most impactful? So, I, you know, first of all, I have to say that I, I'm just so incredibly grateful that the governor and lieutenant governor um, created this task force. Um, and and that we had so many talented, passionate, committed people on it. Um, I think it really took all of us coming together and working through uh, the, the work group process to to come up with the recommendations. I don't. I wouldn't say that I advocated specifically for for anything or against anything. I was I was really just trying to bring consensus on the side of the judiciary and help uh, voice all of the um, all the thoughts and and experience that they had. Um, but I, I have a special, um, I think, priority on uh, youth defense. Uh, I've been working on that for a number of years. Um, frankly, some, you know, since I since I joined the court, and we we started with um, 
uh, with a review of our youth defense system. So that I'm particularly um, interested in seeing moving um, as well as um, improving our data collection so that we can keep driving um, you know, solid uh, policy reforms based on, based on data. Um, so those are, those are two areas that I'm particularly interested in, but there's so many things in the, in the recommendations that I think are really necessary to make a, to make a difference in, in um, juvenile justice. And it starts with um, you know, increasing funding with, with the child care fund. So I'm, I'm hoping that the legislature takes a, takes a good look at that as well. Absolutely. Picking up on what you said about the consensus on the judiciary, I wanted to ask you, what do you, what do you think the role of the judiciary should be more broadly as it relates to uh, youth justice reform and criminal justice reform? It's not like you're sitting down and writing these bills and you're not executing the laws. You're a third branch of government. What is What should we be counting on judges and justices to be doing in terms of taking an active role? So, you know, I talked with a, a lot of great um, judges and court staff around the state. The, the thing that, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was highlighting is that, um, we, you know, Michigan is very diverse and we have a very um, diverse system. Um, and, and there are priorities in various communities that, that maybe don't exist in, in other communities just based on, on the nature of that community and wanting to make sure that I'm that I was speaking on behalf of, of, of judges and courts around the state that look different, but um, also understanding that, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, there was a lot of concern about some of, of the recommendations because in some communities there's resources um, to help those youth and, and families so that they don't have to come to the, the court system. And in other communities, there's no resources at all. And there was concern that, you know, how do we get those resources so that we can shift away from bringing youth into the system? And it's gonna, it's gonna take time. Um, and I, you know, I think that with the recommendations and what's being proposed, there'll be that time to, to create that, that community support for youth and families so that we can, we can you know, keep them diverted out of, out of the system. Yeah, I mean, people come to our organization from a variety of uh, backgrounds. They've had a lot of different experiences. In particular, there was a case in Oakland County that introduced the juvenile justice system to a lot of our uh, supporters. Can you talk a little bit about what you'd like to see from advocates and supporters of youth justice reform? What is the most impactful course of action you'd like us to focus on? You know, I think um, advocates can, can, can and should focus on again, the consensus of, of the task force um, and, and look back at some of the work that they've already done. Um, I, I think of fines and fees, um, things like that, the work that's already been done in, in various communities and taking that and, and sharing that. I think, I think it's a lot of this is education. A lot of this is, is helping um, legislators and, and other um, decision makers around the state understand, you know, here was a, a, an issue that we identified, here's the relationships that we built and the work that we built, that we did, and the data that we found, and, and here's where we ended up because we worked, we worked together. And here's an example of what we've done in one county, this can be modeled in other counties. I want to come back to the recommendations now. Uh, we've talked about on this podcast this concept of the best practices, right? Like what's uh, supported by the data, what's supported by uh, the evidence that we've seen uh, in other states. We want to implement that here. Now, knowing that all of these recommendations came out of those best practices, I want to know about what's not in there. What's missing? What could have been in the recommendations that's not yet there? 
Um, well, there's a lot of recommendations there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, that's a really good question. And I think, I think the answer is that it might take a little bit of time for us to be able to identify what that is. I, mm -hmm. I've actually had the opportunity to talk to colleagues in other states that have done this work, um, and, you know, several years ago. And um, it's interesting to hear from them kind of the lessons learned and, and maybe where they'd like to see improvement now that they've been doing this for four or five years. Um, and, it, and it seems to focus on th that relationship with the schools. Um, and, and I think that that may be an area that we, that, and we don't have to wait for these recommendations to be implemented and then look at it as a next step. I think it's something we can do now where that partnership with the schools and, and communication with the schools and youth and families can, can start now um, to make sure that we're, we're identifying any, any issues that are going on, we're identifying them at the earliest possible time to really focus on prevention. Um, you know, I, if there's anything missing here, you know, I think it's that, it's that piece and it's the prevention piece, which we know um, is, is, you know, the, the best thing to do to, to keep kids out of the system. Yeah, and we couldn't agree more. I we're running out of time here, so I just want to give you an opportunity to uh, add anything you haven't yet had the opportunity to say. Are there any questions you wish I would have asked you? Um, no, I'm just uh, it's it, the last year has been a lot of work, and it's about to be a lot more work. Um, yeah. and that's that's okay. I'm I'm really excited about it. I think I think we've got the momentum right now, and and. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, where where we go and how quickly we can get there. So yeah, uh, Justice, we keep telling people that this is only the beginning of an even longer journey and an even longer conversation. Yep. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Hopefully, we'll have you back in our next season. Uh, we'd love yes. to hear more from you. Thank you so much for advocating for these really important issues. Absolutely, thank you. Again, thank you so much to Justice Clement for joining us on the podcast today. Let's remember, this is only the beginning of the conversation, and it's going to take a lot more hard work to make this a reality. If you're interested in helping out, go to miyouthjustice.org and sign up to volunteer. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to chat, reach out to us at the email in the show notes. We love hearing from you. As always, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Table, Conversations on Youth Justice. Watch this feed for an announcement about our next season. Until then, don't forget to rate and review us as it helps more people find out about the podcast. Until next time.